As you remain standing, you can grab your Bible and turn to the book of Job, chapter 8, is where we are going to begin together tonight. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can use one of the chairback Bibles. You should find uh, this evening's text on page 421. Our series of studies through Job, it continues as we want to hear now Job's second friend begin to offer him comfort and counsel, this man named Bildad. So the sermon tonight and our study will take us all the way through chapter 10. But let me just read Bildad's words in chapter 8 to get us started. And then I'll pray and we'll begin together. So listen now as God speaks to us through his word. Then Bildad the Shuite answered and said, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely... Then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. For inquire, please, of bygone ages, and consider what the fathers have searched out. For we are but of yesterday and know nothing, for our days on earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and utter words of their understanding? Can papyrus grow where there is no marsh? Can reeds flourish where there is no water? While yet in flower and not cut down, they will wither before any other plant. Such are the paths of all who forget God. The hope of the godless shall perish. His confidence is severed and his trust is a spider's web. He leads against his house, but it does not stand. He lays hold of it, but it does not endure. He is a lush plant before the sun and his shoots spread over his garden. His roots entwine the stone heap. He looks upon a house of stones. If he is destroyed from his place, then it will deny him, saying, I have never seen you. Behold, this is the joy of his way, and out of the soil others will spring. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers, yet God will fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the tent of the wicked will be no more. As far the reading of God's word, let's pray once again together. Father, we are grateful that you are kind to us in Jesus Christ and do fill us even this night with your spirit that you might illumine wonderful truths to our hearts, that you might give us great comfort and counsel in this word of old, that we might be built up in the image of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, earlier this afternoon in our membership class, uh, Pastor Mark was, was talking about something that he's looking forward to in the coming weeks, and it's uh, something that every minister gets excited about, no doubt, upon his ordination, as Mark is looking forward to his very first baptism of a covenant child that he will uh, get to oversee. And it led me to think there in the membership class of all these firsts that belong to a pastor's life, you know, your first sermon, your first baptism, your first communion so on and, and so forth. And by the end, I found myself, probably in light of tonight's text that was coming, reflecting not uh, only on the baptism of a covenant child, but in many ways it's mirror opposite that a pastor will eventually have to oversee and officiate, which is the burial of a covenant child. 
I can remember the first time that such an event happened to me. It was a church many years ago, and uh, you can understand in light of such a calamity and, and tragedy that the couple, the parents of this young child that had unexpectedly passed away, had no small number of questions about Scripture and theology. And they eventually asked the question of me that I've since heard many times over. Now, what did I do to deserve this? And it's so often true, isn't it, that when suffering strikes in our life, at some point the soul is going to want to ask the question about, what did I do to deserve this? Or other people will observe and think, what did he do or she do to deserve that. And what we're doing in these weeks that we started last week in our study and the next month and a half or so, where we're beginning to see what Job and his friends who call themselves counselors will say to the man who is suffering immensely. And as we'll see over these subsequent sermons, there is a diversity of images that they use and a truth that they call on and sources for those truths. But underlying each word from each one of the friends is a consistent and basic and ordinary idea. Sufferers get what they deserve. Therefore, Job, you deserved what's happened to you. They're going to use other words. They're going to use other phrases. They're going to use other pictures to say nothing more than, Job, seriously, you, you deserve what has happened to you. And Job, of course, is always going to say, well, no, I don't think that's true. And that's what Eliphaz said, first of all, when we looked at the conversation that came last week in chapters 4 through 7. Because in chapter 4, he said, Job, be sensible. You know that there's no such thing as an innocent person who suffers. Only the guilty suffer. So in chapter 5, Eliphaz said, well, don't just be sensible. He said, be humble. You know, humble yourself under God's hand of correction, his, his rod of discipline, and in time he's going to lift you up. And that only led to Job's desire in the subsequent two chapters for vindication and, and vexation, really, at this counsel that was coming from Eliphaz, because what he says, notice in chapter 6, verse 14, he's uncovering something in his heart there that's surely informative to us, where he said, he who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty, and we know, don't we, from our own life and experience that when this kind of storm of suffering strikes over our heart, suffering that we, we know comes from a hand of a sovereign God, well, what we want so often in the midst of our suffering are not logical and rational arguments about why this has taken place, or perhaps why it's taken place, but much more what the heart desires is kindness, a comfort in the midst of the misery so Eliphaz didn't provide any kindness. Now we come to friend number two. And students, I wonder if you think Bildad, the Shuite, is going to provide any kindness, any comfort to Job. Absolutely not, is the simple answer. Uh, undergirding Bildad's eloquent, if basic, reasoning here is a discourse on God's justice. And it leads us to ask a question that I want to have in the front of your mind as we consider the words printed there for us in sacred scripture is, will you trust God when your suffering is unexplainable? Uh, we're going to find Job basically talking about that by the time we get to chapter 9. He's going to take these truths that are before him, that he knows about God, and the experience that he has endured through this suffering, and he's essentially going to say it, none of it's explainable. It doesn't make any sense. 
And he's going to actually get to a point where he's tiptoeing on that edge of crossing over into a place perhaps even of blasphemy towards God. So we've got two parts to this text tonight. Chapter 8, Bildad speaks. Chapter 9 and 10, Job speaks. And as it often happens, Job begins by speaking directly to Bildad, interacting with arguments that have been made. And then by the end, in chapter 10, he's going to talk to God. So first of all, we want to consider in, in chapter 8 what sufferers deserve, at least according to Bildad. And then in chapters 9 and 10, when sufferers despair, as we listen to Job from the depths of his difficulty. So look again at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 8. We're told that Bildad the Shuite answered Job and said, How long will you say these things? And the words of your mouth be a great wind. You know, kids, I don't know if people use the insult anymore of a windbag. But that's exactly what Bildad the Blunt has just said of Job. You are a windbag. Everything you've just said in two chapters in our Bible is of no value whatsoever. He's listened to Eliphaz speak. He's listened to Job respond. And you can picture there, can't you, build out, as it were, around this campfire where the friends are gathered. And he's just with each passing argument, each passing phrase, he's beginning to boil over. Finally, Job has said his piece. And Bildad is ready to erupt in his bluster. Saying, quite simply, look at the question of verse 3. Does God pervert justice? Or does God, the Almighty, pervert the right? Whatever suffering has come in your life, Job. All he's saying is, it's from God's hand of justice. You have deserved what you have gotten. And so basic and blunt is Bildad's words to Job that he goes so far to say what surely would have been the worst thing possible. For Job to hear, look at verse 4. If your children have sinned against him, that being God, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Can you imagine hearing that as a parent? In a day of sudden calamity and tragedy, all ten of your children, seven sons, three daughters, die in a tornado. And then a friend comes along sometime later, maybe only eight days later, and says, well, Job... I know you're weeping and suffering, but but we know that people get what they deserve. Your kids sinned, and that's why they died. All seven sons and three daughters, their transgression has found them out. Don't you know that? And so his counsel is equally basic. If his question is as basic, his counsel is as basic. Look at verse 5. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy. If you are pure and upright, surely then He will rouse Himself for you and restore you to your rightful habitation. Just repent, Job, and you'll be restored. Happiness and joy will come into your life once again. And so what we saw last week with Eliphaz was when he gave his counsel to Job, he was pulling on two strands, two sources of truth for his counsel. He said, number one, this experience what I've observed, what I've noticed, what I've experienced in the world. And you might remember, he had that almost nightmare-like dream that he said functioned as something of divine revelation for his counsel to Job. And Bildad doesn't pull on either of those sources. What you'll notice in verse 8, he he pulls on the source of tradition. He says, For inquire, please, of bygone ages, and consider what the fathers have searched out. Job, they've told us this before. The great theologians of centuries past, 
The great thinkers and philosophers of ages gone by, they have told us simply that you get what you deserve, that God is just in what he brings upon people. And so all he does, as you'll notice in verse 11, really through verse 19, is he pulls on these two images of papyrus and reeds, talking about what it means for a person who is wicked and who is full of blame to endure hardship and difficulty. Their life is uncertain. The summary statement, notice verse 20, Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evil doers. Job, repent and you'll be restored. Your children got what they deserved. God is just in all of his dealings with people, such as the counsel of Bildad. That's what sufferers deserve, this Shuite says. Now, those of you who are sports fans will probably know something of which I speak when I say there are certain managers and coaches and football defensive coordinators and offensive coordinators that have a system that kind of belongs to them. And depending on the sport, you know, fans can get a little bit upset when the coach's system continues to just kind of occupy the team even when it's not going that well. They continue to lose and the system keeps going. They just play the same way. The tactics are the exact same. No changes any way possible. It's not even seemingly entering into the coach's mind to do something different because it doesn't fit the system. And this is Bildad's system, isn't it? It doesn't enter into his mind that God's ways are unsearchable, that something different than what he thinks always happens might actually be happening. So his system is tradition. Eliphaz's system wasn't it, at least of truth and source of authority, was experience and divine, immediate, supernatural revelation. And I wonder as you comfort and offer counsel to people, if you have this this system that constrains all your comments, It's difficult to fit in anything that doesn't square nicely with your system of how God interacts with people in the world. So Bildad has said his first round of things to Job. And now in chapters 9 and 10, we want to observe when sufferers despair. Job says, look at verse 1 and 2. Truly, I know, Bildad, that it is so. But how can a man be in the right before God. It's possible you could read sarcasm into that language of, truly I know that it's so, Bildad, but it's more likely that he's utterly sincere. He's actually agreeing with Bildad's basic intention in summary comments in chapter 8. Yes, God ordinarily is going to mete out his justice upon people in the world, but this doesn't make any sense, Bildad. I haven't deserved anything that I've gotten. The kids haven't deserved anything that fell upon them in their death. And so what you get in the rest of chapter 9 is language and image upon image, word upon word, that largely is pulling from an ancient courtroom atmosphere. Job is essentially going to say, I want my day in court with God. I want to be able to prove my case. Look at verse 3. If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. So I want my day in court, but I don't know how I could actually contend with him. How am I going to make an argument before the Almighty One? If you scan your eyes through verses 4 through 13, he begins to kind of give this doctrine of God that says, God is invincible. God is invisible. God is incomprehensible. And then verse 14 finds him asking, how then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? I would love the day in court. 
uh, to plead before God, my case, that I haven't done anything to deserve this, that in fact I am blameless, but who am I just to appear before this divine courtroom? He says, verse 15, notice, though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. Skip down to verse 21. I'm sorry, verse 20. He says, though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. And it's here for the first time in the book that Job is beginning to tread on this kind of mysterious and difficult to discern line of where he's going to cross over from faithful lament to perhaps something much darker than that. Because he's trying to understand how his suffering intertwines and relates itself with the sovereign God and he's going quite far, notice, to accuse God of something, verse 20 through 22, though I'm in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. It is all one. Therefore, I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. Students, if you wanted to think about it more basically, what's happening here with Job and Bildad. Bildad says in chapter 8, Job, God is fair. You deserved it. Now, by the end of chapter 9, what Job is saying is, no, God is not fair in what he's done. That's why one commentator says, Job knows there's something terribly wrong about saying that God actively brings injustice on the earth. But if he is to hold on to the sovereignty of God, he cannot see what other conclusion he can reach Who else can sovereignly act on the earth? We'll come back to that in a minute. But he goes back into the depths of despair in in chapter 10 as he begins to reiterate a number of things we've already seen in chapters 3 and 7 related to his own life. Now some of you parents, if you have young children, you know exactly the parenting initiative that I'm going to speak about, and certainly those of you older can probably remember it too, but it's true when you have young children, part part of training them in in godliness, in righteousness, is helping them understand when it's okay to cry. You know, there, there are times in which a child will cry, and it's completely appropriate and right. And there's other times when a child will cry, and you know as a parent it's nothing more than sinful transgression exuberating out of their lungs. You may not cry about that. What you're really doing is just screaming in selfishness and anger. Well, Job begins now in chapter 10 once again to just cry out. This lament to the Lord. You see in verse 1, I loathe my life and I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. And if you were to go home later tonight and read all of chapter 10 that we're not going to do uh, this evening, I wonder if you think his cry is appropriate or has he ventured into that which is inappropriate. It's easy to summarize, especially in light of what we've seen in chapters 3 and 7. He's not going to say anything, really, he hasn't already said by this point in the book. He's essentially going to offer all of these complaining questions, these uh, lamenting inquiries to God, saying, who am I that you're just dealing with me in this way? Why are you bothering with me so much? Notice verse 10, did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? Verse 14, if I sin, you watch me and do not acquit me of my iniquity. If I am guilty, woe to me. If I am in the right, I cannot lift up my 
head, you see in verse 18, he again essentially says, Why am I still alive? If you're going to bring me out of the womb, why is it that I am still having to endure all of this suffering and hardship and trial? So verse 20 finds him asking, Are my days not few? Then cease and leave me alone, that I may find a little cheer. Can you trust God, his sovereign in goodness and justice, when your suffering is unexplainable? That's the question Job's presenting to us tonight. I was speaking with a pastor friend in the Metroplex recently. He's a associate pastor at a local church in the area. And we were having lunch, and he was seeking my counsel on some things going on in, in his church right now. Evidently, it's quite hard, and it's been hard for quite a while. And he was really, in many ways, just kind of asking if, it, if the time was right to, to move on from that church. And he's a younger brother in ministry, and so he's thinking, hey, is the time right? Should I stick it out and continue to learn this, that, and the other? And uh, among the several things that I told him, I said, hey, brother, just understand, uh, for men that are young in ministry, sometimes there is a, a unique blessing of God to learn from the negative. And what I meant by that was sometimes it's really helpful to learn how not to do something as much as it even is to learn how to do something and what we're finding out in Job along the way, especially in the studies of these conversations with Job and his, his counselors, is not only how Job points us forward to suffering well, but also how as counselors and comforters, no doubt to friends, family members, or perhaps even those closest to us, how not to counsel and comfort them in their grief. So what then do we learn from this simple conversation between Bildad and Job. I want to show you a couple of things, too, as we begin to close, about what it means to suffer well. Number one, suffering well means a right understanding of God. Uh, if you have eyes to see and you're able to read through every phrase in this passage in a, in a patient way, you will see that there are two presenting problems to Job. He knows God is sovereign over suffering, how does that sovereignty relate to God's justice and relate to God's goodness? Maybe you know in your own experience of suffering how it seems like at any point and every point those two attributes of God are what are most often called into question. If you believe God is sovereign over all things and ordains all things and governs all things including sickness, sorrow, and sadness, suffering, and loss, and tragedy, how do you reconcile that with God's justice? How do you reconcile that with God's goodness? And what you see principally in this passage is for Job, it's so difficult to reconcile that unexplainable reality in his life because what he's looking at primarily is his experience of God's character. And I wonder how often you might have begun to build a doctrine of God. An understanding of God's character that's really based on nothing more than your experience and perspective of his dealings with you in the world. When in reality for us with the scriptures in front of us, that, that bedrock and foundation of truth that helps us understand who God is in the midst of our suffering is not what we think we are experiencing. What we perceive God to be doing in our life, but what God says is true. That his justice and goodness are always married together. That his grace and wrath are 
always connected to each other. And the reason we can understand that to be true is because suffering well doesn't mean only a right understanding of God. Suffering well means the correct umpire before God. Notice the end of chapter 20. I'm sorry, the end of chapter 9 to see what I mean. Look at verse 32 and 33. Remember, Job is, is one in his day in court. He wants to contend with God as someone would in a courtroom. He says, For he is not a man as am I that I should answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who may lay his hand on us both. You see what he wants. He wants an umpire. He wants an advocate. He wants an arbiter. He wants a mediator. Someone who can grab Job. Someone who can grab God. And bring an end to the suffering. And what's Job saying? I don't have anybody. If you know this book well enough, soon enough he's going to say, I actually do have someone. And I trust in that someone. But for our intents and purposes tonight, isn't it true that we know the mediator's name? Jesus Christ. That apart from Jesus Christ, who is the only mediator between God and man, there is no one to arbitrate between you and God. There, therefore, is no one to answer the problem of your suffering, not just present suffering, but eternal suffering that your sin deserves and demands that you receive this punishment of. Because of what Jesus Christ has done, uh, we find this umpire is actually language Job is similarly using is is a mediator, someone who can grab sinful people like you and me, can lay hold of God. And now, suffering comes to an end. And why is it? Because of what he did, of course, at the cross of Calvary. Because it's there that unexplainable suffering begins to find its explanation. It's there that we see that it is possible for innocent people to suffer. It's there in its perfect sense that it is possible for people to get something they don't deserve. That's at the cross of Christ that God is reigning over all things in a way that we see so perfectly and beautifully come together his justice And goodness, they meet. His wrath and his grace, they marry together. That which seems to be unexplainable finds its explanation in Jesus Christ. So, when suffering strikes and it feels altogether unexplainable, ask yourself the question, what do you understand to be true about God? Do you have someone that can mediate between God and you? Someone who can promise an end to all the suffering? Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your Son, Jesus Christ, that in the midst of our sinfulness, you sent your Son to die in our place, to take the penalty of sin on our behalf, to reconcile us with you. Lord, we pray for any in the room tonight that may be going through a tragedy, that may be going through a difficulty, that may be enduring great hardship or hurt. Uh, That your character would minister to them, that your spirit would comfort them, that Jesus Christ would always be near to them as we know he is ever-present, making intercession for us at your right hand. It's to him that we hold, and it's to him that we look, and it's to him and through him that we offer these prayers. Amen.